Hello, and welcome to the last chronological episode of Outside World Occultism for 2019. When you are hearing this, it will have already been 2020 for some days, so I am blind. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Happy New Year, everyone. We did it. With me today are F. Hi. Katya. Hello. And Lavender. Hi. So... Today, we're sort of going to be talking about the nature of canonicity in Toho Project and some recent things that Zona said on the topic. But first, there was a new chapter of Lotus Eaters. Yeah. It's good. I liked it. And if you want to avoid Lotus Eaters spoilers, we do now have chaptering in the podcast. So you can just skip ahead to the flag that says end of Lotus Eaters spoilers in about four minutes or so. Your podcast player may or may not be able to support that properly. I can't speak for all of them, but it should work. It's still hard to tell where the manga is going, I think. Yeah, definitely. I was expecting, you know, the big I'm a horrible yokai monster reveal or whatever to happen much later and be a lot more dramatic than it is, but... We spent most of the Lotus Eaters episode talking about that. (laughs) Yeah, I think that given recent history of dramatic I'm a yokai reveals, I think it's good to just get it out of the way, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really funny that Suika's just like, oh, you've noticed her. That's the weird demon that lives in my court now. (laughs) Yeah, I guess in the end it's probably easier to make an interesting plot out of the events surrounding them after the reveal, rather than, you know, stretch out the very basic she's obviously a yokai mystery very far. There's a point where dramatic irony cannot carry a plot, and I think Zonis realized that now, uh, which I think is good. <laughs> There's the distinct possibility that it could still be unrevealed due to her ability and all that, but kind of story-wise that would be kind of weird. I think Zun could get away with doing that once. Yeah. He just keeps writing the same chapter for like eight chapters in a row. Yeah, get him a job at Kyoto Animation. <laughs> yeah, and Suika is the only one who knows what's going on. I like how casual Suika was about it too. Like she's not fussed about this gourd demon who steals memories or whatever. Like she's just like, oh yeah, she lives in my bottle now. Yeah. I could take her. Also, obviously there's been some yokai along the way who have been massively different from their original versions that they wouldn't be recognizable. But I think this is the, might be even the only case I know of where Zun has pretty much made up a yokai, like, out of whole cloth. Her species is like Suima, right? Suima? Yeah, it's drunkenness demon, basically. It's a pun on Suima, also meaning, like, sleep demon or sandman. Mr. Sandman! Man me a sand. <laughs> First result for like googling Suima is the Japanese translation of the Neil Gaiman Sandman comics. I see. Top 10 anime crossovers. Yeah, that explains why no one made the connection ahead of time. It wouldn't be the first time that Zun had introduced an essentially western creature into Gensokyo. Yeah. We were just talking about Kagero before we started recording. Yeah. How she's a dog. You know, the famous Western creature dog. (laughs) (laughs) Do we have any other news or new business before we get to the assigned topic of the day? Guess we'll move on to canonicity, which is a word that I'm really looking forward to saying over and over. 
This podcast is canon. Yes. Yes. Everything we say here. A warning. This podcast is canon. <laughs> Everybody get up. It is time to slam now. So the thing that wanted me to sort of talk about this topic on the show is that Zun was sort of talking about, was it in Strange Creators? I want to say it was in Strange Creators, where he was sort of talking about what he wants out of the future of Toho Project. It was on a, like, Garakuta interview, which is basically the same thing. I still don't know what's the exact relationship between the site and the magazine, but... You probably know the interview's details uh, more than I do. I also haven't read it, like, start to end or anything, but yeah, in a recent interview, he was asked about the future of Toho, and he still seems to be pretty much maintaining the stance that he wants to keep working on it and everything. But there was the idea that he would like... Or at least it was an interesting idea that the series could develop into a, like, Cthulhu Meadows. That's another word I'm looking forward to saying a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Direction with, like, him as the original creator, the much less problematic Lovecraft in this case. So is literally every human being not responsible for, like, large-scale atrocities. Yeah, but... (laughs) As himself, like the original creator of the series, that is then open for other creators to expand and be considered like co-canon with him instead of just fan works. And that was like his, at least there he expressed this as kind of an ideal for the future of the series, but there were no like concrete plans or anything. Though this, there are some lines to be drawn with the fact that this came out shortly before the Strange Cow web comic started. That's going to be a topic. Yeah, and I think that is definitely notable there, because those are unofficial, but at the same time, they have this sort of Zun mark of sanction, which I think is one of the many, many points by which I will be contrasting him with H.P. Hatecraft himself, as far as this (laughs) conversation goes. Because, so Lovecraft's co-creators, Durlith and those largely came about and had their influence on shaping the Cthulhu mythos, which Lovecraft never called it that. Yeah. Right. Imagine being, like, so full of yourself that you, like, actually refer to your own product as a mythos. Yeah, he (laughs) called it, like, as a thothery or something. It was not a... (laughs) (laughs) Thothery. It's something simple like that, which surprised me because it was four consecutive syllables out of H.P. Lovecraft's mouth and did not contain a single racial slur. (laughs) i'm gonna be dissing lovecraft a lot in this episode because as much as i'm fond of like the thing that his works became the man himself is nasty and not in like the funny sega way he's just bad he's just kind of a dick you know understatement of the century but yeah yeah essentially he was largely ignored in his lifetime which is the reason that so many of his protagonists are tragically ignored horror writers (laughs) shout out to randolph (laughs) carter (laughs) Lovecraft's co-creators were essentially friends of his that after he died, they were given a dubious amount of the rights to them, which is kind of an ongoing legal controversy Hmm. among the people who care about these things, which is not many. The current holders are pretty chill about it, so nobody has cared to resolve it in great detail. Just wait until Disney acquires Cthulhu. (laughs) Well, that's the cool thing. I think everything Lovecraft wrote except for his very last stories is in the public domain now 
That is a very thorny question because the exact line is in the middle of when he was writing. And then there's a question of where the rights transferred into to who. And this isn't really a copyright law podcast, so I'm not going to go into it in too much detail. (laughs) The pertinent part is that Derleth and all of those essentially stepped in to a space that Lovecraft had left behind, and they were the ones who built Arkham House and sort of all this big, weird fiction mythology that the Cthulhu mythos was eventually. And I think it's interesting that Zun instead, we see him providing a official open space where he takes, you know, this is a Toho writer who I think is interesting. This isn't me writing it. It's not official in that sense but he's providing them with that platform himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the stuff like Starving Marisa's Hungry Meal and Azumaya's Komachi comic like exist in this weird plane of like semi-canonicity. <laughs> yeah. Where they're like... The things that could have happened might as well be canon, but aren't technically. They're canon to their versions of Toho, and I think that's the point he's trying to make in the interview and in the other discussions he's sort of had with people on this topic. Ever since really publishing Dojins and Strange Creators, the difference now is they're serialized. Yeah. When I say, like, might as well be canon, I, like, specifically mean that the things that could, like, broadly speaking, fit into the canon, but they're not might as well be canon in the sense that they should be taken as canon or anything. I'm going to throttle the first person who tries to treat them as actually canon and cite them at me or something. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like Zun gets asked about canon a lot, especially from the Western audience, it seems like. Anytime there's like a chance for the Western audience to ask Zun questions at like an event or whatever, Mm. I feel like the question of canon tends to come up. I think the first time was when people asked about like PC-98 and whether like the stuff that happened in PC-98 was canon. And Zun's response to that was just this sort of like, you know, like if it contradicts stuff that's currently going on, then it's not canon but otherwise it's canon is basically what his answer amounted to yeah and he's never seemed that interested in like nitpicking the small details which obviously is especially prominent near the start where we brought up that a lot that he didn't really start to even think of it as a consistent setting until a bit of a way in and I think it was kind of an interesting detail. Obviously, it could also have been like him talking to a unfamiliar audience, but it's an old interview, but it was brought up a while ago in that, like this Swedish magazine interview of Zun, where the way he discussed the PC-98 and the Windows Canon was just, the Windows Canon was the games that he'd made under the name Team Shanghai Alice. That was the division that he made between his new and old games and not any kind of like, this is where I did a reboot or these are the old games and these are the new ones. And I think this is notable in the context of just the differences by which Japanese and American or English media production people approach this sort of question. In the West, especially with long running serial works and stuff, there is a huge notion of maintaining continuity, even to the point of bending over back backwards to ridiculously justify how everything is still in continuity. (laughs) Yeah, except when it isn't. If you look at things like comic books. This is definitely directly the fall of like Star Trek people, I think. (laughs) (laughs) The Japanese audience had the same sort of 
thing emerge in roughly the same time because the Star Trek boom happened right around the same time as the Gundam boom in Japan, which is where a lot of sort of fan culture there came out of. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't put it at the feet of like Star Wars and such as much as I would at the feet of how the comic book publishers handle things. Yeah. And I mean, if you compare the biggest Western comics and the biggest Japanese comics, the Western ones tend to be decades long that have like a dozen writers along the way. 200 different storylines and alternate universes and so on. Which is part of why A, they tend to have a lot of like random reboots and bend over backwards retcons and stuff like that. But they usually, as you mentioned, try to maintain some facade of continuity between those writers anyway. Yeah. Whereas in Japan, the long running series with a lot of different installations, but like the archetypical manga is written and probably drawn by one person beginning to end. There's like a different standard for canonicity, kind of. It's franchise canonicity rather than specific story canonicity. And the reason I sort of brought up Mobile Suit Gundam with its role in fan works is I think it's very telling to look at how Sunrise and Bandai who, like Bandai and its various affiliates, are like one of the biggest producers of anime and manga and all of that. You do not get far without running into their fingers in any given pie. (laughs) (laughs) If you look at like, so Gundam and Star Trek are kind of the parallel equivalents in terms of how they shaped, you know, modern mass media culture in their countries. And if you look at each Star Trek series... Gene Roddenberry was there until he died, and then it has been all sorts of different directors doing all sorts of different takes, but they always have to say, here is the direct line of descent from Roddenberry's Star Trek. Whether it's, you know, this is a prequel or a sequel or an alternate timeline, but Leonard Nimoy is here anyway. (laughs) Any number of things. Whereas the first Gundam show that wasn't directed by Tomino was a completely different timeline with no connections to Universal Century. They changed everything. It was kind of nuts because they had Imagawa do it and the executives meddled a lot. And that is a hilarious story for a different podcast. But the thing in common was not the story or the narrative or any of that. It was the name Gundam. And that was sort of about it. And I sort of think that's the predominant view of a franchise in Japan. Like you see it with Kamen Rider these days too. You know, there's crossovers and shit, but each one is first and foremost its own story within the franchise rather than continuation of the previous element of the franchise. Right. I feel like a pretty good example of this kind of crossing over from Japan to the United States and there being like a confusing clash there is the Legend of Zelda timeline. Yeah. I was actually wondering whether we should bring that up. That one was going to come up one way or another, I think, today, because it's that's what happens when you try and fit one notion of continuity into the other. And it uh, it's kind of horrifying. There's a reason it's a meme. (laughs) When that first came out, I was kind of wondering, I can assume that the like hardcore fans had been wondering about it. But I'd always been pretty happy just taking the Zelda games as, like, independent. I think that's actually true of most people, because it was a huge... The instant it came out, it was this huge punchline. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of the, I never asked for this kind (laughs) of thing, right? Where no one was out there asking Nintendo to put this together, but I think someone wanted to. 
And then, you know, it's the Hyrule Historia. What are some ideas to put all this together? And there were certainly fan theories and things, but I Mm. don't think that they were a huge portion of the fandom. Yeah, I doubt it. I think that they were a small and vocal part that someone noticed and was like, okay, let's bring this together and satisfy these people. Let's put out like a data book. I bring this up because the exact same thing happens with Gundam. If you've ever gotten into an argument about canon and the references to old shows that were in turn A. Mm. And because this isn't a Gundam (laughs) podcast, I won't get into that more. But let me tell you, you have not seen... The dumb shit. You have not seen people saying dumb shit. Imagine if someone like said, oh, you want to see the new Iron Man movie? Here's every single issue of the comics. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I will say that the only Gundam I've ever seen is Gundam 00, which slaps. I was like, "Uh huh, there's like a billion Gundams. Maybe I should like try to get into the rest of the series. And so I asked like a Gundam friend about it. (laughs) And they introduced me to all of the timelines and universes and series. And I was just just like, you know what? I'm just going to not watch any more Gundam. (laughs) Yeah. And here's the thing, though, because were you talking to a Western fan? Yes. Because that's the thing. And I see this a lot in Gundam fans is that Western fans, everything needs to be explained and put into its proper places and all that. And here's my advice to anyone who wants to get into Gundam and is listening to a Toho podcast for Gundam advice for some godforsaken <laughs> reason. Wait, you said you wouldn't get any deeper into it. <laughs> Someone else followed up, so it's not my fault. Uh, it's, listen, it's, it's relevant. Yeah, find a show that looks good and watch that. Yeah. And actually, I think this is really relevant to Toho because um, it's so hard to get people into Toho, I feel like, in the Western fandom, because people always ask, like, how do I get into Toho? And the answer is always just like this overwhelming information dump that tends to sort of scare people away or be completely overwhelming in a way that is not helpful at all and like the fact of the matter is that we all basically got into Toho in a completely different way and like the answer really with Toho is to just pick something and go just like literally any Toho stuff and Mm -hmm. just go without worrying too much about how it all fits together because that is all stuff that you will figure out as you read more Toho stuff or play more games or whatever. And the thing is, you're the one at the end of the day who fits it all together. There's not a universe Bible to which all must be adhered. There's not even a freaking map. <laughs> Your Gensokyo will vary. <laughs> That's actually... Uh, so the thing that feels closest to Toho's idea of like the canon this idea is even discussing here. So there's this role-playing game setting called Glorantha which was created uh, late 60s and became released around the same time as Dungeons and Dragons initially and all that. But the like core element was that each individual group or player or reader's version is going to inevitably vary in large part because the vast majority of stuff about the setting was never published and was never in publishable state. So there was this acceptance that you could call it third-party people, like individual players or whatever, writing their own stuff would have... Uh, certain degree of canonicity just from being well-written or being cool or being a joke reference to trashy movies. <laughs> yeah, that feels very, yeah, in line with the uh, serialized doujins. Yeah, that kind of wraps back around to the Toho example. Yeah. The next part of the interview was a big but on, like, Zun's part that, like, so far he's not really seeing in the fandom what he imagines when he talks about the Cthulhu Mythos approach. 
Because even though there are a lot of like influential fan writers and stuff like that, they're really just still making fan works of Jun stuff and of his characters and his stories and all that. Yeah. He didn't say that as like a bad thing, but it was the difference between like him and the Lovecraft successors. I think that's going to continue more or less as long as he's alive, but I think he's doing a good job of laying the groundwork for an alternative. Yeah, that's pretty much it. As long as he's still making like new games every couple of years and running like several manga side by side, people are going to be playing with his characters and his setting like way before they start like really committing to original characters or his actual example was that they're really not riffing off each other at least not like explicitly obviously there's a lot of like intertextuality <laughs> in the fandom in fan works yeah. and they're influencing each other but there's really no big example of people actually writing fanfic of each other's fanfics which he seems to consider like the gold standard for when we're approaching the mythos approach yeah i think part of that is just sort of dojin culture in general like despite the fact that zun himself is basically just a dojin creator and toho is a dojin work it is sort of held up as his thing. It's his baby. And I guess this, this sort of perception that doujinshi based off of it is going to be, you know, just a doujin. I think what he wants is basically to get rid of the just a qualifier at the beginning of that. Mm. The sort of perception that a doujin work is somehow less important. Less than, yeah, the original. I do think that perception is there for a reason, and that's because a lot of doujin is not up to the same standards. <laughs> yeah, they're never going to be, like, automatically co-canon. At the same time, though, there's an element of good for a doujin rather than good, right? Even if it's a good doujinshi. They're not going to call it good, they're going to call it a good doujinshi. One big thing also that's like a difference between Gensokyo and Lovecraft's setting is that Gensokyo, even with its gaps and space for interpretation, is still a way more solid setting with like way more recurring characters, for instance, than anything Lovecraft ever wrote, which is another reason that its fan works are obviously going to be like more about that setting and those characters rather than... In the end, even if Lovecraft thought about some or all of his stories, as sharing some like vague setting in the end they were pretty much independent and just like thematically connected if that or just like one character or two and then the you know whatever elder god which is why it was natural for people to just write more stories in the same theme and then add those on whereas with toho obviously if they're not going to be crafting their whole long Gensokyos, then they're going to be like working within this one I can see Zun's efforts to sort of create a world that is more of just a setting that anyone can use in terms of his music CDs, basically. Because, like, the main Toho stuff, it always follows Reimu and what she's up to, basically, and the people that are around her. The music CDs with Franco and Mary basically being, like, a separate thing that is sort of also something that could potentially happen in the world of Toho that is not necessarily like, limited to Gensokyo. But that also is just, like, a small mini-series of its own that follows specific characters and the things that happen to them. 
So I feel like maybe Zun wants to create more stuff that's like Dolls in Pseudo Paradise that kind of stands on its own but is clearly part of the same setting and takes place in the same world, maybe at a different time or with different characters. I think that would go a long way towards sort of helping to achieve this sort of mythos-like status. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and obviously there are like some fan work series that basically make a like alternate universe take on Toho and not just by like horribly misinterpreting it but like high school AU <laughs> like actually openly intentionally making a Toho as a totally not a Dragon Ball pastiche is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still waiting for someone to do the film noir Toho because thematically <laughs> that completely tracks. You know, you can translate the characters' roles and things to be instead of Remu the Shrine Maiden, it's Remu the grizzled detective who never goes off the job, and Marisa <laughs> the sassy private investigator who's meddling with every case. And you know, you have the whole underworld versus other world sort of similar equivalent culture classes. My point is that it tracks, and someone should do it, and it shouldn't be me because I'm lazy and I write super slowly. Yeah. But see, I think the problem with something like that is that it is just another riff on Toho as Zun writes it instead of sort of being its own. Oh, yeah, yeah. In the sense of the Zun's goal, it is definitely still an AU of the, you know, canon Toho materials rather than like a full original work that's based on Toho. Yeah. yeah. It's sort of weird because there's two things in Toho that are so strongly defined and it's there's the characters, but there's also the setting. Mm -hmm. And so does it work with a different setting and, you know, sort of built on the characters and their relationships? Is that more or less derivative than a work in the, you know, same or related setting with different people? There's also a... Uh third axis to consider, thematic continuity. If you have a work that has the same kind of like sort of satirical attitude Toho takes towards mythology and history and like folklore, you know, how close is that in continuity with Toho as a series as compared to things that use the same Gensokyo and related settings or things that use the same characters that vary the setting? Because, you know, there's a whole lot of Lovecraft stuff that doesn't use any of the Lovecraft names, but has the same mood, right? One shouldn't conflate Cthulhu mythos with the use of Lovecraftian as an adjective for weird fiction. And there's a reason a lot of people use weird fiction instead of Lovecraftian. So I don't think thematic continuity is necessarily... Well, I'm actually thinking of stuff like Frank Belknap Long's Hounds of Tindalos, which is... I think it has maybe like one or two specifically Cthulhu words in the story, but everybody agrees it's a Cthulhu mythos story because it's drenched with Cthuliana, Lovecraftiana, whatever you want to call it. I think that's like a just an interesting point to consider for... Then we define Toho as like Miko as a character, for example, you know, and how that she relates to Prince Shotoku and the stories around him. Um, I don't know where I'm going with this. I guess I'm like Toho is like also Zun's attitude and outlook towards the world yeah i think that one of the reasons that the Cthulhu mythos was like easier to form than the toho mythos what would it be called anyways it's not the would it be the kari mythos <laughs> i think it'd just be like the Gensokyo mythos 
It would be Gensokyo Mythos, probably. Because keep in yeah. mind that Cthulhu himself, other than being famous, is like pretty irrelevant in the grand scale of Lovecraft. Yeah. I want to go back to a thing you mentioned earlier, which is the differences between a derivative work that uses the same characters and setting as Zun versus a derivative work that uses the same setting and the same concepts and so on, but is sort of its own thing with its own original characters. And I think the difference between those two is simply, I think, the perception that one is its own original work that is based off of Toho, and the other one is considered fan fiction, which sort of, you know, goes back to the whole, oh, this is just a doujin attitude. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the last episode, we compared Zun a lot to Terry Pratchett. <laughs> and I do think that that's a, a much more relevant comparison than Lovecraft, unfortunately, for Zun. Yeah, it's a writer, definitely. Zun looks a lot more favorable compared to Lovecraft than to Pratchett. <laughs> we went from a very low bar to a very high bar, so no offense is intended to Zun. I don't mean it in like comparing them in terms of like the greatness of their works i just mean like like zun and toho are a lot more like terry pratchett and discworld yeah than mm -hmm. they are like lovecraft and the whole cthulhu mythos despite yeah. the way that he encourages fan works and stuff so a thing that i've said before is that toho is basically a dollhouse you have this established setting and all of these characters and what Zun is doing with those characters is basically doing his own story at like, let's say in the same way that like My Little Pony does like a TV show or whatever. But the people who are going to interact with that aren't necessarily going to like, they're not going to make their My Little Ponies play out the stories of the TV show. They're going to take the characters and they're going to use them to create their own stories that like might, you know, consider stuff from the TV show, but aren't necessarily going to you know, be canon compliant to the My Little Pony TV show universe. That is sort of, I think, what most of the fan engagement with Toho is like. Like, you're just taking these characters and you're putting them in a dollhouse and you're making them play with each other and you're making them fight with each other and you're making them go on adventures together and overthrow, like, an evil queen or whatever. It's not a story in the same way that uh, Wild and Horned Hermit is or... Like, see a lunatic kingdom or whatever, you know? Yeah. I think that is sort of the difference between most Toho fan works and, like, some sort of uh, proposed um, Ginsokyo mythos. Uh, Toho story. expanded universe. Yeah, that becomes, like, yeah. highly influential in, like, 20 years' time or whatever. Yeah, I think that's actually an important, like, difference to make, that an expanded universe is, by definition, a, like, central work that has, like, licensed out the right to make these spin-offs that are then considered, like, at least the next step of canon. Whereas the Cthulhu Mythos approach is that, well, I guess there are probably some purists or whatever, but... In the end, uh, they really are like co-canon. At least the big Mythos writers are pretty much co-canon with Lovecraft, right? They're not really dismissed as... Exactly who that is depends on who you talk to, but nobody's saying... There aren't that many Lovecraft-only people, because, uh, spoiler alert, Lovecraft's prose <laughs> is actually very bad. Yeah, I know. The dude can convey a mood, 
very well. And that's like the most credit I'll give him as a writer because, oh this God. This guy was so fucked up. He was so fucked up and insane looking and just horrible and scary and <laughs> to -ho, but so fucked up. horrible that I can't even describe him. That is significantly more adjectives than Lovecraft would use. You're just going to have to use your imagination for this one because he's so fucked up that I can't even describe him. <laughs> like, in the Expanded Universe approach, there would be, like, a official Toho material stamp that would be put on specific fanworks that have been blessed by the Tsun Megacorp. The Nintendo Seal of Quality! <laughs> <laughs> 30 years from now, Shanghai Alice acquires Disney. <laughs> this is the good end of media. Shanghai Alice purchases the city of Shanghai. <laughs> and makes it a city state. That or just grabs it and conscripts it to service on the ship. Obviously, we've been kind of dancing around what canon actually means usually when talking about Toho. And I made a like, post about this before on the Chirikiden Tumblr, but there's a lot of different meanings for it. Like when you talk about its canon, a lot of the time it's just like a vague sense of like validation and that something is like air quotes real. Like, when someone talks about a ship being canon, for the most part, that's kind of the side that they're talking about. A lot of the time, that kind of canon can be a lot more between the line stuff also, but a lot of the time also just a meme. In a sense, the, like, strict kind of canon is, when talking about the series, what can be cited as evidence or as a source when one is, for some reason, required. And, like, in that sense, it's different if the canon ends up becoming like muddled enough that there are actual conflicts between like versions. I don't think this fandom can handle like actual inconsistencies in canon. <laughs> <laughs> Even worse, it can't handle the idea, it can't handle the power to declare that no, I don't consider that canon. Because that's such a conversation ender basically. <laughs> if people get it into their heads that the canon is like malleable and they can just say that no i don't consider this print work canon you can't cite it at me i mean you say that but that's exactly what a lot of people do about alternative facts in eastern utopia well okay fair but we riff on that a lot <laughs> i think that is something like you have inaba the earth and inaba of the moon yeah that's what it's called right it's called inaba of the 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 inaba been a while since we did that. Uh, yeah, I haven't done that bit in a while, so remember. <laughs> I don't know that there's like anyone who considers Inaba of the Inaba canon in like the same way that Forbidden Scrollery is canon yeah. or, you know, Legacy of Lunatic Kingdom, which, uh, why, why do I keep coming back to that as my example? Anyway, <laughs> in the same sense that that would be canon, just because it is just like a weird gag manga. But imagine like a universe where that same person could declare that they don't consider Forbidden Scrollery canon. <laughs> Sorry, Forbidden Scrollery isn't canon to my Inaba. <laughs> to my Inaba base interpretation of Toho. Yeah. That's just the YouTube comment section under IOSIS videos. <laughs> <laughs> if we really reach the point that, like, some dojins become co- or semi-canon, then that kind of opens the kind of worms in both ways. But it's going to be a mess also. 
Yeah, and I think that's kind of what we're we're standing on the precipice of that now because there's never been anything like. Why can't I remember the name of the Kamachi manga? Kamachi's rowing her boat again or whatever. Yeah, the Shinigami rowing her boat as usual. Yeah, and starving Marisa and the Aku comic, which I haven't read yet, but it sounds really good, so I need to do that. Yeah, you should. There's never been anything like this before, where it's just this sort of like vague half canon material that Sun himself has sort of given a blue check mark to. Um, but it's not like, I don't even think that it's something that he has done that to like officially in any sense. I'm kind of like cautious to go too strongly on that point since even though we are kind of extrapolating from the point that the Strange Cow comics started uh, like literal two weeks after the interview about the whole Cthulhu Mythos thing came out and he's been talking about his attitude on fanworks and canon a lot in the past and stuff like that. Even then all the Strange Cow comics besides Shureki then anyway start with this whole disclaimer page. At that point you kind of run into the issue of is it like a disclaimer just like for the sake of it we put this disclaimer here so people aren't confused and just so we aren't liable for anything in this or is it like an actual meaningful message yeah is it like some kind of statement on oh these are like canon canon even then they kind of like seesaw on that since they say that the i'm just reading out of memory that that the artists are responsible for everything within these stories and then at the end it kind of plays coy and I don't know if it's just like completely playing coy or actually making a statement that these are things that could have happened. Is that an actual statement under like canonicity? Someone could take it as such but I'm not really going to until further evidence. I think it means what it says. I think it means that these are things that could have happened. There's no, like, special level of canonicity being given to them, but they're plausible. But if you, like, take it literally, that would require some kind of, like, more communication between Sun and the writers and... Or, you know, a wider idea of what the canon means in the first place. I think it is definitely him trying to appeal to that wider notion of canonicity. I think it's important that it is basically Zun saying that this is something that could have happened. Maybe it didn't happen, but the fact that it's essentially Zun saying that it could have happened sort of gives it slightly more weight than a typical doujin. Yeah. It's his way of emphasizing that just because he didn't write it, it doesn't make it not relevant or, you know, just ignorable in that sense. Just because he didn't write it and say that these things happened doesn't mean that these things, it's impossible for these things to have happened. I guess since I like enjoy digging the manga for like facts and snippets and stuff like that then that's kind of what makes me nitpick on this part because like even if the events in there are just something that could have happened but didn't that kind of leaves the like other like setting facts and stuff like that characterization and such i'm not taking it too literally i'm just saying that it shouldn't be taken too literally but i don't know what that too is Embrace ambiguity, basically. I think it comes back to the same sort of attitude he's always had for the setting. It's the setting is what it is. 
Mm. You know, just because something isn't established or because something is established elsewhere doesn't make it not true for the work it's in. Yeah. That's kind of honestly a very frustrating and annoying way of... Because, like, the people who are super interested in whether this could have happened or not are people who actually care about the canon as this, like, you know, continuous thread of uh, Gensokyo lore. And for those people... I think that this is definitely a very frustrating way of approaching it. I do think that this is simply experimenting with story writing in a way that he hasn't before, allowing people to have these like vaguely canon, possibly canon versions of stories that was never a thing before that he's done. Because Zun is a as a creator, he's very like iterative. He does just constantly try new things and see what sticks basically i think and so i think this is probably like the first step of an experiment with regards to helping his world be the sort of fertile ground for a uh, mythos based uh fandom i guess rather for it to grow out of a fandom into a mythos yeah, and if it is part of that sort of experiment, then it really is just the first step, since as long as those disclaimers are there, then they're like very specifically secondary to the like one comic in the same magazine that doesn't have the disclaimer. Yeah, but at the same time, like August Derleth originally wrote this was created by H.P. Lovecraft, even as all the Derlethian things were added in. So it's not that it happens overnight. Just honestly, I think at the end of the day, what Zun does for the growth of Toho, any and all decisions that he makes will be secondary to his initial decision to just allow derivative works to the extent that he has. Yeah. When, you know, he retires or dies or disappears into fantasy or whatever else <laughs> if he leaves toho to the public domain the rest will do itself yeah. yeah at the end of the day the most successful mythos like properties and all of that to come out of fiction are the ones that are allowed to enter the public domain like sherlock holmes is so much more iconic of a character than any number of detectives associated with individual specific authors yeah and i don't think that zun's efforts in like our current time are uh, like in any way just sort of like him attempting to like manufacture a mythos i think it's what he wants to see and whether or not it happens he's not going to like force it yeah it would be nice for this mythos to emerge but that really is something that can only happen in the far off future it's something he can't do he's tilling the soil as best he can yeah and i think yeah. i saw some were like briefly just the idea that like the mythos idea was some kind of i don't know desperate attempt to save the you know perpetually dying series that's all <laughs> <laughs> Toho like, is reclining. Yeah. <laughs> the series that has been dying every year for the past 10 years and all that. Every year since a bunch of hentai fans decided to play Kantai Collection instead, they have insisted <laughs> that Toho has been dying. And I don't know how to explain that anymore. Yeah, the big thing with the Mephos is that we are really looking at it like almost a century in retrospect. Even if it is pretty optimistic to say that we don't know what will remain of Toho a hundred years from now. But we're looking at like at a way longer time scale. Even if like specific Toho 
fanworks don't end up like forming some kind of mythos. Why am I saying if Toho does end at some point, there's going to be a long influence of people writing that Toho Dojins as original series instead. Like strongly Toho influence stories and all that. I mean, there's already a lot of works that are quite frankly just Toho with the serial numbers filed off. It's a very nice thought to think about Toho like a hundred years from now just being this massive phenomenon. Yeah. I think it has a better chance than most current IPs. I'm gonna say that. Absolutely. Because people can do things and that is so essential. Within the fandom it's often kind of easy to like lose sight of the fact that Toho is in the end just one series and we don't have a lot of precedent obviously for what a like 21st century media will look like a hundred years from now. We do have a view on what happens to early 20th century media and what happened to 19th century media and all of that. The divide in terms of, if you look at like how works develop after being released into the public domain, sure, most of them never go anywhere, but the things that are already iconic, like Sherlock Holmes and Alexandre Dumas novels and Apologies to the French, I still don't know how to pronounce any of your names. Uh, <laughs> you know, things like that. If only you was here. The lasting things always have had countless adaptations and countless things, and I've never seen something last that long. And I guess that's because we haven't seen institutional control for more than the last hundred years. But, like, name a 1940s film that has had a huge presence in today's market other than just being re-released on licensed Criterion. Hmm. There isn't one. Yeah. I don't think. Like, there's not, like, name a character from the 1940s other than, you know, your Mickey Mouses in them that are huge amounts of money behind them. But, like, what's one specific work that inspired a character like Sherlock Holmes or like The Three Musketeers? James Bond? Bond is post war. But that's still just one series of films, right? Bond is like Mickey Mouse. There's a lot of money backing that there's not a whole lot of derivation bond is one big franchise that a powerful group has been pushing right there's not a bunch of different versions of bond there's not a someone's production of james bond the musical there's not like extremely weird derivative works of Mm -hmm. it whereas like if you look at like sherlock holmes there was like that one saturday morning cartoon where like watson is a cyborg in like 500 years from now or whatever you don't see that shit with james bond the way that you see it with sherlock holmes the closest equivalent for um like the 30s not the 40s would be dashiell hammett's continental op and that's only because red harvest the one novel he starred in was a big influence on kurosawa's yajimbo and then in turn on uh leone's dollars trilogy so you've got like the man with no name coming from that, but that's not even like this. That's just the same archetype, right? Not the same character. Actually, I think my favorite case study for this to bring up one more, like everybody knows Zorro, right? Mm-hmm. Like that is a very iconic character. How many actual Zorro things do you see versus <laughs> knockoffs of Zorro? 
That's true. Like, everyone knows who this is. This is an extremely iconic character. And the reason that no one makes a film about it, despite him being this very classic figure that has all this name recognition, there's no, like, the Muppets Zorro or whatever, because there's a (laughs) huge, disastrous copyright spiral over who owns Zorro. So what you're saying is that in 2065, when we finally execute Mickey Mouse for his crimes against humanity, <laughs> Toho will become the dominant media force in the world. <laughs> it depends on how much we can free from Mickey and how much he destroys in a final act of vengeful spite. <laughs> Mickey Mouse fiddles while the vault burns. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly... I think that's about, like, the best possible line to end our topic for the week on, because, like, how are we going to top that? Uh, Do we have any mailbags? (laughs) We have a lot of mailbags. We have so many mailbags, but I don't want to talk about them right now. We also had some, like, leftover mailbags. Yeah, we did. Do we, like, I feel like if we talked about any of them, though, they'd be, like, at least a 20-minute discussion. There's, like, actually a really good one that's kind of relevant to this one about, um... A last mainline Toho game. Hmm. Before this, I do want to briefly address some matters of mailbag policy. We got a question that's like, your opinions on fanfic writer redacted. If we talk about a fanfic author or an artist or someone else in the community, that is whichever host of the show thinks they're cool, bringing them up on their own and talking about them. We don't really... We don't do opinions on people on request. Yeah, we're not passing judgment on specific figures in the fandom or whatever. Other than Makoto Hirasaka. Yeah, Yeah. especially not like the Western fandom. Because like, even odds are we know whoever you're sending in by name, like one or two degrees of separation. Yeah. You know, if we shout you out on the show, that's because, like, whatever it is that, you know, your specific work, we like it and we think it's relevant to the discussion. If we don't like you, we usually would not mention the name. We just sort of talk about broader trends because we don't have, like, a shit list or something. There's not, like, a, Mm -hmm. this fanfiction artist has done Toho crimes and is banned from outside world occultism by the sacred quorum of five. The Torifane Council has declared you problematic. Yeah. <laughs> Voted off the satellite. <laughs> the Owo enemies list. Voted into the airlock. Part of why we can't do even like positive opinions on request is obviously that if we like set a strong precedent for that, like answering positive opinions, then it would also imply that if we don't answer your question, then that means that we don't like the person or something. Yeah. So it's like it's like better to just not answer them at all. And sort of relatedly to that, we're also not a bully pulpit for your complaints about the direction of the series. So please don't send us asks that are just, I don't like this thing about Toho. Like, that's not a discussion starter for us. That's not really a question. That's like, you're entitled to your opinion, but like, we're not here to elevate your discourse. Please post your manifestos on your own blog. And if they get enough circulation that they come to our attention and they're cool, like that might get them on the show. But please don't like ask a question that says, here's what I think. Do you agree? 
Yeah, don't yeah. don't speed run your way into discourse. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of a blurry line, obviously, when people are sending us, for instance, like, does this theory make sense to you? But it's a, it's a blurry line, but it's usually obvious in context, yeah. which is which. When it's a fan theory is different from an assessment of something, right? There's, here's this theory, do you think this is plausible? And then there's, here's this statement of opinion, do you agree? Yeah. We can tell, when in doubt, feel free to send in your stuff, and worst case, we'll think that it's too opiniony, and then not put it on the show. We don't borrow Clarst's Terminators to wipe out people who send us bad <laughs> mailbag questions, right? All right. The worst that'll happen is that we don't answer it. Yeah, we only do that for people who try and pay their artists via exposure. <laughs> like, there is no penalty for sending in a bad question, but, like, if you sent in a question... And you're like, well, they haven't put it on the show and they haven't talked about it. And it's like, it's probably because we looked at that and it's just like, this is just someone who wants us to give them airtime on our like, what, <laughs> 100, 150 listeners or something. So like, you're not even advertising your opinions to a very large crowd. Yeah. Your search engine optimization would be better suited to like buying invasive banner ads on Reddit or something. I don't know what yeah. people do to make people care about their opinions. Make a YouTube yeah. Let's Play channel that's a thinly disguised political commentary and call everything you say satire. I don't know. And if you are just like venting frustration and ranting, then it's probably not the most efficient way to send it to a podcast where the mailbag question will probably air like a month from now. Yeah, it's, there's no instant gratification here. Yeah, and, like, we can tell at the end of the day if... Like, there, not that there's anything wrong with venting, but, like, vent to your friends, not to five disembodied voices on an increasingly abandoned space station. We have our own things to vent about, and they usually don't get it into the podcast unless they're relevant or we think it would be funny. For example, yeah. Sega. She's nasty. <laughs> <laughs> we will vent about that nastiness. Say go nasty, you heard it here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, just I don't know that there's any questions that we could have like a productive discussion about right now. But I do think that this conversation that we've been having about sort of the future of Toho and like the direction that it could go in and what would happen um if Toho ever ended and so on. I think that would be a good discussion topic for next week actually. And then there are a few questions that we could toss in from the mailbag that are very relevant yeah. to that conversation. At this point it kind of feels like most of our mailbag questions are ones where we need to kind of devote a good third of the episode to them. I do like that, though. I think that's the ideal, yeah. It gives us a lot to talk about. It gives us a lot to think about, and it sort of allows us to sort of expand our own brains in a way that maybe we wouldn't ordinarily do. None of us is as smart as all of us, which is to say that each of us is as intelligent as the sum of all of us, and thus uh, our intelligences are all flat zero, so. We are each one brain cell, and the more brain cells there are, the bigger the brain. Yeah, exactly. We don't come up with our galaxy brain takes on our own. There's a whole bunch of stars in that galaxy, and we're just the one you see, so. Yeah, it's called a galaxy brain because that's how wide the five brain cells have been divided. <laughs> <laughs> I think on that note, this has been Outside World Occultism for the week. Keep on shining, you beautiful celestial brain cell stars. <laughs> See you next week. Bye. Bye. Goodbye, Goodbye all. <laughs>